Tonight we're going to uh, be reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to be looking also at Lord's Day 19 from the Catechism, uh, focusing specifically on questions 50 and 51 uh, this evening. So, uh, Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, as well as Lord's Day 19, if you don't have a bulletin, Lord's Day 19 can be found on page 881 uh, in the gray hymnal. But we'll read from Hebrews chapter 1 first. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read there. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent." Than theirs. And we read from question and answers 50 and 51 together. I'll read the questions, then we'll read the answers together. Why the next words, and is seated at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven, there to show that he is the head of his church, and that the Father rules all things through him. How does, the, how does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through His Holy Spirit, He pours out His gifts from heaven upon us, His members. Second, by His power, He defends us and keeps us safe from all enemies. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do... Confess to believe, we, we did so this morning here, uh, that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Tonight, Lord, as we think about this truth, uh, that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of God, we ask that you would help us to understand it right, uh, to be encouraged by it, uh, and um, just to be moved uh, to, a, to a greater degree of obedience and faith because of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've said this to you before, uh, probably say it again. When it comes to Scripture, there are no throwaway details regarding Jesus or anything else for that matter. Everything God tells us uh, in His Word, every detail He gives us specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ is significant. Okay, everything he tells us is, is worth noticing and pondering and understanding. That was true regarding the burial of Jesus. That's when I said it last time. It's also true regarding Jesus' sitting at God's right hand. The writer of Hebrews tells us right there in chapter 1 that after Jesus made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. We actually read about Jesus sitting at God's right hand also in Hebrews 12, the passage that we began with tonight. Paul speaks about it also um, in Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8. Okay, Scripture is clear that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And the truth is, this is where Jesus is right now. Okay, He is not in a manger. He is not on a cross. He's not in a tomb. He's seated at the right hand of God. And the theological term we use to describe this is, is the session of Christ. The word session means seated. When class is in session, the students are supposed to be sitting at their desks. When Congress is in session, Legislators are sitting at their desk. When court is in session, the judge is sitting at the bench, and, and the attorneys and, and defendants are, are sitting in front of the bench. In the same way, the session of Christ refers to Jesus' as being seated at the right hand of God. And we might say that right now, you know, Christ is in session. Uh, now, what's the significance of, of Jesus' being seated at the right hand of God? Why, why should we care what the writer of Hebrews says, that after He made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? Well, let me give you four words tonight that will hopefully help us grasp and appreciate the significance of this truth, that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The first of those four, that's certainly the note, finality, finality. That's certainly the note that's being sounded in Hebrews chapter 1, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The point is Christ's work is finished. He has done what God the Father called him to do. He has paid for the sins of his people. He has conquered death. And having done so, he sat down as one does when their work is finished. Kevin DeYoung says, Picture an attorney making his closing arguments to the jury. And then after a crescendo of rhetoric, he says, I rest my case. And he sits back down next to his notes. Or think of a mom who has had no time for herself all day. She's made meals, cleaned the house, changed diapers, folded clothes, helped with homework, played in the backyard, raced to the grocery store, and now finally has the kids snoozing in their beds. She walks wearily down the stairs, and for the first time since she woke up, <coughs> excuse me, she sits down. He goes on to say, in both examples, sitting down is more than an act of rest. It is representative of completion. All that was necessary has been accomplished. We might say Jesus' sitting down is kind of like an exclamation point on those words that he spoke from the cross. It is finished. It is finished. So finished that our Savior could sit down when it was over. Let me ask... Do you believe that? Do you rest in Christ as one who believes that it is finished? The work is done. 
Or do you remain restless as one who continues to think, you know what, you must add to Christ's work in order to be saved. You must do your part. My friend, it's finished. He sat down. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can only receive God's free gift of salvation with the empty hand of faith and the one who, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's the first word, finality. Completion would be another word that would get across the same thing. The second word is majesty. Majesty. James Boyce says, in the ancient world, to sit at a person's right hand was to occupy a place of honor. A seat at the right hand of the host would be a place of honor at a dinner. But to sit at a king's right hand was more than mere honor. It was to share in his rule. It signified participation in the royal dignity and power. So in the ancient world, if you sat at a host's right hand at dinner, you were the guest of honor. If you sat at a king's right hand, you, you shared in his rule and possessed his authority. And no doubt this is what the Bible is saying when it tells us that Jesus is at God's right hand. He has been given the place of highest honor and authority. He's been given the name that is above every name. And no doubt there is glory in this and there is majesty in this. John Calvin says that one purpose of his sitting is so that both heavenly and earthly creatures may look with admiration upon his majesty. Certainly we see something of the majesty of the exalted and enthroned Christ in Revelation 1. Listen to what John writes. He he here is seeing the Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. This is what he writes. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then John says this, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And again, the majesty of the enthroned Christ in Revelation 5.13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders did what? They fell down and worshipped. 
Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, and in that, the Bible's clear, there is majesty, mind-numbing, body-paralyzing majesty, to which the only response is to fall down and worship. The third word is prophecy. The third word is prophecy. You might remember that way back in 2 Samuel, God made a promise to King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God comes to David and God says to David, David, when your days are over, you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. He's going to come from your body and I'm going to establish his kingdom. He's going to build a house for my name and I'm going to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says, I'll be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Of course, how God would establish David's throne forever, no one knew at the time. But the New Testament tells us that this promise would be fulfilled in Christ. When the angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's what the angel says to Mary. Now, when does Jesus take his seat on the throne of David? Well, he takes his seat on the throne of David when he sits down at God's right hand. When he sits down at God's right hand, he is is sitting on the throne of David. You see this if you go to Psalm uh, 89. You can turn there if you want. You don't have to. (coughs) In Psalm 89, specifically verses 19 through 37, we read about King David and about God's promise to King David to establish his throne forever. And if you're there, you can look at verse 27. This is what God says about David. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Okay, the throne of David is the highest throne in all the earth. The one who sits on the throne of David is the king of kings because God has put him there and God has declared it so. The one who sits on the throne of David, even in the days of David, was considered to be the one who was at God's right hand in the highest place of honor and authority. But but the throne of David, right, it's the highest throne there is. And so when Jesus takes his seat at God's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, He is on the throne of David. He is on the highest throne in all the earth. Prophecy is fulfilled when Jesus takes His seat. This is really the word is authority. Authority. This is really the point that is being emphasized in the catechism. Question and answer 50 says, Christ ascended to heaven, 
there to show that He is the head of the church and that the Father rules all things through Him. And sitting at the right hand of God, Jesus has been given ultimate authority. Jesus is the one through whom God exercises His reign and His rule and His sovereignty and His power over the church and over all creation. Remember what we said about sitting at the right hand of the king in the ancient world. It meant you shared in His rule. And in sitting at God's right hand, God is saying about Jesus, here is my appointed ruler. Here is the one through whom I'm exercising my power and my authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, I think is the key text here. There's a number we could look at. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 says this, That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church." Paul tells us there that in sitting at God's right hand, Jesus has the ultimate authority. Okay, in the church and even in the world, there is no debate about who is in charge. There's no debate about who calls the shots. There's not a power struggle. Yes, there are fools who try and act as if if they have the power. That's what sinners do but they do not. There is no power struggle. Remember what Psalm 2 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs at those who take their stand against him. There is no power struggle. All power, all authority belongs to Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and dominion and authority and power. We might ask, how does Christ exercise his authority. How does he ordinarily exercise his authority, right? There is some ways that Christ can exercise his authority extraordinarily, right? We don't rule out the miraculous, but how does Christ ordinarily exercise his authority, which he possesses at the right hand of God? Well, first thing that comes to mind is through his word. Isaiah 55, 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Christ, one way He exercises His authority is through His word. He also exercises His authority through His Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 1 Corinthians 12.7, to each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Christ exercises His authority through His Holy Spirit. Christ exercises His authority Through the church, by entrusting the church with what are called the keys of the kingdom. We're going to talk about this 
later on in our study of the catechism, but, but the keys of the kingdom are the preaching of the gospel and the exercising of church discipline. Through the preaching of the gospel and the exercising of church discipline, Christ opens the kingdom of heaven to believers and He closes it to unbelievers. Christ exercises His authority through the, through the workings of providence, certainly. Daniel 2.21 says He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Christ exercises His authority through the workings of of providence. Nations rise and fall at His command. Even rebels do God's bidding, right? We see that in the cross. There's no doubt when we look at the cross, when we really take the long view of the cross, there's no doubt who's in charge, is there? The Lord Jesus Christ is in charge, and even those who crucify Him are doing His bidding. He exercises His authority through the workings of providence. Finally, He exercises His authority through judgment, or He will exercise His authority through judgment, even as He already has to some degree, but the fact is those who, those who refuse to submit to Christ's authority now will be forced to submit at the judgment. What does Scripture say? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's what we don't always think about. Many of those tongues and knees will do so only after they've been condemned to hell. Christ exercises His authority through judgment. And this reminds us, this reminds us that that Christ possesses authority whether you submit to it or not. God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That's true whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. The believer is one who acknowledges that truth now and who receives mercy and grace and forgiveness for sins because of it. The unbeliever is one who will acknowledge that truth later when it's too late to be saved. But every knee will bow. It will. Jesus possesses authority Whether you right now recognize that authority or not, whether your neighbor right now recognizes that authority or not, that's why it's important for us to share the good news that the one who is in charge, the one who is sovereign, the one who possesses all authority is right now offering amnesty to rebels through faith in Him. Right? That, that's the good news, that the one who is king is offering mercy, is offering pardon to those who've offended him, to those who've sinned against him. And even now, you can receive it as you confess your sins and believe on his name. But the offer won't last forever, will it? A time is coming when it'll be too late. Let's pray together. Taking satisfaction for Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise that after making satisfaction for sins, you sat down at the right hand of God. In that, we're reminded that your work, your redeeming work is finished 
in that we're reminded that you alone are worthy of our worship. You are the one through whom the prophets spoke about. You are the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. We ask that you would give us grace to submit to your authority by faith daily as we walk in faith and repentance, and also to call others to be reconciled to you by faith in your once and for all sacrifice on the cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing again together. We're going to sing majesty. Why don't I give the parting blessing first, and then we'll, we'll get the last song. You may stand up. His face shine. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. Our closing number is number 74. Number 74, it's just a chorus for the most part. We'll sing it through and be on our way. Number 74.